Good morning. Glad to be here with you today. Uh, last week I wasn't here because we were down in Burlington at a church that, that I, I served uh, before I came here, and the, the new pastor that uh, they've got to come in who's replacing me, they, we installed him last week in that church. So they said, oh, they brought some former pastors back in, and we got to lay hands on this brother and pray for him and, and uh, <clears throat> bring him in. So it was a great time. But I heard this place was just like rocking last week. And I was like, man, you know, but it was rocking this morning too. And it's going to continue to be rocking because we have Jesus and we love to worship. Amen? Amen. Well, we've been going through this, this sermon series pretty much, you know, all summer about, about these guys in the book of Acts, these four different ministers. We've been talking about Peter, Paul. We talked about Philip, and we talked about Stephen, and we, we looked at who they each were as a person, as a minister. We looked at what their message was. We looked at what their mission was and their method. And then to kind of wrap this whole sermon up and put a nice, neat little bow on it, you know, Mike talked about his method and mission and ministry, all that stuff. And then today it comes to me. And I got to tell you, I don't get very nervous when I preach sermons anymore, but I've been like terrified all morning because, I mean, I'm, a, I'm not a shy person, but I really don't like talking about myself when I preach. I like, to, I like to just talk about Jesus and the scriptures and stuff, so it's a little bit weird for me and awkward, but this is my fourth time doing it, so, so uh, I'm starting to get, you know, a little bit better at it, but I just had this little deal with you guys where I'm just going to do this, and you're just going to hang with me, all right? Is that cool? Can we do that? Because my goal really today is that you would get to know me a little bit better as, uh, in terms of how I came to this place and how I came to ministry, and that you'd understand some things that are, that are fundamental to me in terms of how I want to do ministry, because Really, that's, that's important for all of us as we move into the future together to know what makes each other tick. So I'm just going to start by telling you a little bit about who I am and how I got here. Uh, basically, it's unlikely for me to be here for a number of reasons. I didn't grow up putting my, my you know, eyes set to a career in ministry. Even though my father is a United Methodist pastor, I had my own idea of what I wanted to do, and it was nothing like being in ministry. And as I was in Philadelphia, uh, I was 20 years old. I was playing drums in a secular bar band, trying to make it in the music world. And it was at that moment where God just kind of grabbed me and did this thing that God can do sometimes where he says, okay, you've got your thing and here's my thing, and they're not quite matching up. How do you want to handle that? You ever have that conversation with God? You see, I, th I think it's important because a lot of us sometimes, you know, I certainly lived in this world, can have the view of, I've got my thing, and I want God to sort of kind of come alongside it, and we make this deal with God where we say, okay, God, here's my thing, and I'll be really, really good. I'll go to church. I'll give money. I'll be a nice person so that you will make my thing be awesome. I mean, that's kind of what Christianity looks like to some of us, isn't it? I'll be a good person, I'll do good things, and then you'll make me successful in my thing. And I think, you know, I certainly would have been on that program, except for God just kind of leveled me one night in this church service, and he said, do you want to do your thing or my thing? And you can't do both. And I got on my knees and I said, okay, God, your thing, whatever it looks like, I have no idea what that looks like or how to make it happen, but I'll do whatever you want. Well, it was a couple days later that I got a phone call to go interview for a job in Davenport at a United Methodist Church as a youth pastor. Now, growing up in, 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 in church, I still didn't recognize that that was even a real job. Because for me, like a youth pastor, we didn't have youth pastors when I, the churches I was growing up in. We had a, a volunteer couple that would let kids come over to their house and feed them Doritos and, and snacks and then take them bowling once in a while. And that was what we call MYF, right? Methodist Youth Fellowship. So 
to know that this was a job was intriguing for me, but however, it was a job to which I was entirely unqualified for and had no desire to do. So, of course, I walked into the interview, you know, sat down there, and, and they said, Keith, tell us about why you should be a youth pastor. And I said, I really have no idea. Keith, tell us about what brought you here and why you think you should do this job. I really don't have a clue. Tell, Keith, you're, you're pretty young. You're only a couple years older than some of the students you'd be in ministry with. How would you deal with that? I honestly haven't got a clue. Are we done yet? And I walked out convinced that God was just calling my bluff and my, my life in international rock stardom was about to begin, right? And then, so when they called me and said, you're the guy, I'm like, this is a crazy church. <laughs> and, and, and what began with, 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 with sort of a lot of hopes and unknowns turned into this 13-year ride, okay? And, and not long after I came back, you know, I, I brought Estelle back with me, which was a good thing for the state of Iowa. And, and we got married and, and had kids. And, and, and uh, you know, this journey in Davenport began, and it became more than I ever, ever dreamed it could be. As our little youth group of 12 kids grew to something that was like 300 kids. And it became this amazing thing. But I'd love to tell you that it was all, you know, fun and excitement and everything. But I want to tell you the, the, the truth. When it all ended for me, it ended badly. And I walked out of there a broken, defeated, discouraged shell of a human being that knew one thing and one thing only. I was never going to do that again. You see, being in a successful ministry had done a lot of things for me, but it had also done a lot of things against me. And what happened was this, and I'll get into more of this a little bit later, but I, I had come to a place in my life where I believed more than anything that my value to God was wrapped up in my effectiveness in ministry. And I was soon to learn that it doesn't work that way. So when I walked away from all of it, I was determined never to go back again. My, my family was in shambles. My career was over. And I had no clue what was going to happen. And it was a scary, dark, difficult time for us. My return to ministry about two years later was pretty reluctant. I had spent some time doing various other jobs um, that have nothing to do with anything just to kind of make ends meet. I, I, I had a short stint working at a steel mill doing 12-hour swing shifts. Now, I know you look at me and you think, there's a steel mill worker right there. <laughs> yeah, that's what the other employees thought too. And uh, then we spent some time, uh, we spent about a year working at this boys' ranch in Wilton, Iowa, where we lived with these teenage boys who were struggled and, and, and struggling and in, and in terrible trouble, and we became farmers. I know you're looking at me and thinking, dairy farmer, right there. Let me tell you something, I can milk me a mean cow. All right? And if you think I'm good, you should see Estelle do it. She's awesome. So, so it was, it was a, a, a time of, of, of searching and really sort of trying to rebuild. And, and God began to bring these weird things into my life, these opportunities to go preach again and speak again. And I thought, no way. I'm not doing that. You know, I get these calls from these pastors that would say things to me like, hey, Keith, we, we've, I'm going to be gone next week. There's going to be nobody at my church. Will you come and preach that week for me? I'd be like, all right, I can do that, you know. Because frankly, I, I needed the $50 they would give me for something like that. And, and I began to do things a little bit more like that. And, and 
And at one point in time, I got a call to go down and, and speak in this little church in Burlington. And I walked into this church, and, and, and it was about 30 people. And the youngest person besides me was in their 70s, okay? Now, I know what you're thinking when you look at me. You're thinking, there's a pastor for old people right there, you know? And, and I went in there, and, and, you know, we got through it. But it was something different about it. They loved me, you know? And, and here's what's, what's interesting. I loved them. I mean, there were no crazy bands, there were no bombs going off, there were no lights, there was nothing, nothing like that. But yet, we just like fell in love with each other, me and this little church. And I brought my family down, and eventually they invited me to be their part-time preacher, because they couldn't afford to pay me full-time. So I'd drive an hour and a half down to church on Sundays, preach one sermon, drive home. And then, and then I'd drive down on Wednesdays and spend a little time in the office. Eventually I became their part-time pastor. And this little church, it, it, was, it was awesome. And we spent two years there, and the church began to grow. But more importantly, for us, anyway, we began to grow. I began to grow. And those two years I spent in the small church world, away from all of the hype, away from all the expectations, away from all the comparisons with the other churches in town, was a time like that was a gift from God to me because I, God used that time to, to heal my heart. And, and one of the things that he showed me in that time was that he didn't give a rip how many people came to anything that I did or how awesome something was from a worldly perspective. What God cared about was what was going on in my heart and in my family. And, and, and that was a, a, an amazing time, and, and, and it was a good time. And, and in August of 2010, my wife and I, Estelle, we, we, we renewed our wedding vows in front of our friends as a celebration of our new life together and that God got us through a very, very difficult time and that we were going to be okay. And I was very thankful. We didn't have a lot, but everything we had, we were extremely grateful for. I remember one particular time where um, I can tell the story because my friend Tim is here uh, from Davenport. Tim and I were sitting, I used to drive to, to Davenport early in the morning on my way to work. See, I worked at, a, at, a, at the largest cathedral, this Catholic cathedral in downtown Davenport. Did you know that? Now, no, you're looking at me and you're thinking, that looks like a guy who works at a Catholic cathedral. What job could he do at a Catholic cathedral? I'll tell you the job I could do. I could trim the hedges outside and sweep the sidewalks. I was the groundskeeper. Made $11 an hour, no benefits. You know, I'm a college-educated man, right? And I, I, had, I had a great career in ministry, and I, I was making $11 an hour with no benefits. We had less than $400 in the bank. We had no prospects. We had no, no plan B. We had nothing. And I remember I was sitting in Starbucks in Bettendorf with, with my friend Tim having coffee before I was to head into work. And I got a phone call from, from my boss who said, Keith, I don't have anything for you to do today uh, so, or tomorrow. So, you know, I'll see you maybe Wednesday. I'll call you. And I already made the trip. I'm sitting there with Tim, and I'm like, well, all right. As we're sitting there drinking coffee, a guy walks up to me that I barely just sort of know, just kind of, he's not even a Christian guy. He walks up to me, and he says, hey, Keith, you, you may not remember me. My name's Charlie. And I heard that, that you're, uh, you know, thinking about maybe doing some preaching again. I just think that'd be a great thing. And he handed me a check. He goes, I want to help you. And he handed me a check for like $140 or something like that, which was just about the exact amount of money that I would have made in those two days working for my friend. You see, even though we had no prospects, no money, no nothing, we, you know what else we didn't have? And this is the truth, and Stella will tell you. We didn't have any anxiety either. You see, here's the deal. We knew that God was going to take care of us. We knew that he was. We had this impending sense that no matter how bad things had been, that, that we were doing okay now and that something would come up, that God would make something happen. 
And indeed, he did as he began to provide for us over and over, time and time again. And it was a nice time. It was a simple time. And then I got, a, I got home from, from church one night on a Thursday, and I saw Facebook lighting up. And I looked at some of the messages over Estelle's shoulder of what was happening on Facebook, and people were talking about the fact that, that uh, Pastor Stan Wearson was about to pass away. Now, many of you know Stan Wearson. He was the former pastor here for, for a while, 10 years ago. Well, Stan was a big mentor in my life. He was a, a big influence. See, I was a camp kid. You guys know this. My first summer games experience happened in 1985 when I, when I was a fourth grader. And, and, and it was there that I walked down the aisle and received Jesus into my heart. And, and, and I was hooked, man. I loved camp more than anything in the world. It changed my life. It was awesome. But, in, but when, I, when I fouled out of ministry in, in 2007, I basically severed all of my ties with all of my former ministry colleagues and, and friends, and I basically just disappeared, there, including Stan. There wasn't a big confrontation or blow up. I just, I just wanted to be gone. And so I hid away in my life and didn't talk to anybody, including Stan. And when I saw that he was about to pass away and finally would, I had to wrestle with that, and in my stubbornness, sort of tried to insulate myself from, from the emotion of it. And Estelle says, well, you know, you're going to go to the funeral, right? And I looked at her, and I said, there's no way in the world I'm going to that funeral. The truth is, I was afraid. I didn't want to face a lot of people I knew were going to be at this funeral. I didn't want to face my old life, which was so wrapped up in the whole camp thing and ministry thing. I just didn't want to look at it anymore. And she said to me, if you don't go to that funeral, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. Stan was so important to you, and if you don't go because of your stupid issues right now, you're going to regret that. And I said, yes, dear. <laughs> so I came to the funeral, and I don't know if it was my insecurity that was just all over me or my timidity, which was probably a new thing for these people to see, um, but I remember kind of just sort of wanting to be a bump on the wall when, when Mike Morgan walked up to me and said, hey, Keith, it's great to see you. And I felt like he actually meant it. And then he said, Keith, I don't know if you know this, but there's a special area of the sanctuary that's been designated for pastors, and, and, and you'll be there, right? And I looked at him, and I was like, there is no way in the world I'm doing that. But Mike doesn't care what you say when he wants you to do something else. Did you know that? So he says, yeah, 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 whatever, let's go. See, here, here's the truth. I, although I had this, this career in ministry, I never really felt completely like in, like accepted in certain circles of ministry because, you know, I had to drop out of graduate school when I was a youth pastor because I couldn't handle driving back and forth from Dubuque to Davenport twice a week to finish my graduate degree so that I could go on to bigger and better things when I already had a huge youth group that I had to deal with. So I was a seminary dropout. I didn't have a certificate on my wall of ordination from the United Methodist Church. I didn't even own a robe. So what was I going to do hanging with these bigwigs in the, in, 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 the, in the sanctuary? That was for the real pastors. And certainly at my point, at that point in time, I was just a part-time preacher. But as I sat there and the service began, my, my focus shifted away from my own issues, which shouldn't have been on in the first place, onto Stan and what the Lord did through this great man of God. And it was as if the Holy Spirit just, just poured over me and, and made me feel something that I hadn't felt in a long time. You want to know what it was? It made me feel like I was at home. You see, I don't know what it is about the Methodist churches 
but they have some kind of smell. You know what I'm talking about? Where you walk in the door, and I don't know if it's something they put in the cross and flame or whatever it is, but for me it was like walking in. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but like you walk into your house that, of the, the, that you grew up in and you haven't been there forever, and you walk in and you just, wow, something hits you. I felt that in this church. I hadn't been in this church for 20 years. I was over at uh, Dana and Kate Goshan's house once, and you know, Kate's a summer games kid, and she goes, hey, Keith, I got something to show you. And she hands me a, a four by six picture of me standing about right here, weaving back and forth with a bunch of summer games kids when I was 17 years old. I showed it to my kids. They were like, Dad, you were skinny. <laughs> and he had weird hair. You know, it was 1991, man. It was Beverly Hills 90210 days. I had the sideburns, and, you know. So something hit me with this, with this sense of being like, man, I'm here, you know. What is up? And I was thankful to Estelle for nudging me to come. And I knew that, I knew that God was, was showing me that, you know what, a lot of the stuff that I was so worked up about, a lot of the things that I was so insecure about, so scared about, didn't happen. People received me with love and grace in their hearts. You ever have that before where like you get so afraid of what people might think of you, or what they might say to you, and how they're really feeling about you, and you're so worked up and it keeps you like hidden away, and then when you get out there, it's not that bad at all? That's kind of what happened. And, and as we were downstairs, when Mike walks up to me and says, so, he had like this weird enthusiasm. He kind of does this thing, you know, where he, he goes, <laughs> you got the video turned off, right, Walker? Okay. <laughs> he says, he says, what are you doing now? And here's the thing. I knew that he didn't care because what he wanted to know was, when are you going to start at our church? And that was a whole nother deal. Not unlike my first interview process. Keith, you wanna, why do you want to come to Marion? We don't. Keith, you want to be youth pastor? No. See, all of this youth pastor stuff in big church, here's the, here's the deal. I didn't want any part of it because I was loving life in little church, no expectations, not caught up in, in big things anymore and trying to be some big thing. I was loving just this little world of doing ministry to people who didn't care about how cool anybody was or wasn't and taking time to be with my family. And Estelle and I were not sure that we wanted to sacrifice that because we'd done it before. And actually, we turned the job down a couple different times before God basically sat on both of us and said, no, this is what you're going to do. And I'll tell you this. Since the moment that we said yes We'll be here. I can't tell you what God has done in our lives. He has provided for us. He has taken care of us. He has done so much through you all and through this place. I can honestly stand here and tell you that we are having the time of our lives here so far. It has been a blast. I absolutely love working with these kids. I love it. I love working with the staff. I love being here. I love preaching to you guys, even though I have to go from, I used to preach for 45 minutes, 50, just get warmed up, you know? So be lucky. But <laughs> we, we've seen God's grace in amazing ways, and, and we're blown away. So, so that's really the, the 
the shortened version, actually, of how, I, how we got here and what God's doing through us. Now, let me tell you just briefly what some things are that are important to me in ministry, because I think you need to hear them. Because as we do ministry together, you need to know what makes me tick just as I need to know what makes you tick. And I want to tell you, as I look at my life in ministry, and I know that, you know, we talked before about the message that each of us has in our lives. What was Paul's message, Peter's message? And I told you this when I preached on this, because I think I did that part for every one of these guys. The mess- your life's message is not just the things that you say, it's the things you say coupled with the things that you do, coupled with how you respond to your successes and your failures in life. All of that together blends into the message that your life says. And here's what I want my message to be. It's not complicated, but it's important to me. It's two words. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. So, wow, that's pretty profound. It's more profound than you and I will ever wrap our minds around. Because when you've lived in the world where you sort of just brush that aside and you live as though it's up to you to save yourself and it's up to you to figure things out and it's up to you to be good enough and it's up to you not to be bad and it's up to you to be smart enough and then you come face to face with the reality that you can't do it, and that you fail, and that you're a miserable, sinful, wretched person, when you come face to face with that, and then you look up at God, and he still says to you, come to me, and I'll do something with your life, you recognize that Jesus saves. John chapter 6, verse 37, he says this, All those the Father gives me will come to me, And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how bad things were. It doesn't matter how messed up you were. It doesn't matter how unworthy you think you are. Jesus said that whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Jesus saves. You don't save yourself. Jesus will save you. I know some of you are going, well, of course, Keith, we know Jesus. Let me tell you something. I think what's happened to us in the church sometimes is we've taken this idea of Jesus saves and we've made it about, about people outside the church and we've forgotten about how it applies to us inside the church. You see, the gospel, this message of Jesus Christ, death on the cross that has paved the way for our salvation because of forgiveness of sins through his, his death and resurrection on the cross, that's a message for Christians as well as non-Christians. The gospel is just as much for those of us in the church as it is for those people outside the church. Jesus wants to save you. Did you know that? Now, you might have gone down just like I did when you were a young kid, and you said, well, I don't need to be said. Yes, you do, and Jesus will do it. Jesus saves us from everything that a person needs to be saved from. And I guarantee you, in a room like this, there isn't one of us who doesn't need to be saved from something. Now, maybe you need to be saved from from a life absorbed with yourself. Jesus can do that. Maybe you need to be saved from a life of worry and fear and insecurity. Jesus can save you from that. Maybe you've got a hurt in your life that you can't seem to overcome. No matter how hard you try, you just can't forgive. You can't let go. You can't move past it. And you've tried everything. You've read the books. You've spent thousands of dollars in therapy. And no matter what you do, it just doesn't seem to work. When are you going to recognize the fact that Jesus is the Savior? Jesus can save you from that. But it says that you have to come to him. But yet many of us 
do this to Jesus. Oh, I got the church thing, Jesus. I'm cool. Oh, yeah, I know the Bible. I'm cool. I, I, I'm going to work real hard. You just watch. You'll be proud of me, Jesus. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. I think that's what I want my life's message to be, you guys. I don't want my life's message to be just work real hard and good things will happen. I don't want my life's message to be be a good person. I want my life's message to because you know what? I can't anymore. I want my life's message to be this. No matter what happens, if you trust Jesus and you come to him, he will save you. That's my message. So what's my mission? Well, I told you before on this one too that your mission, here's, here's Keith's little definition of the word mission for your life. Your, your mission is the thing that you believe is the most important that you can do with yourself. It's whatever you believe is the most important thing that you can do with yourself. That's your mission in life. If the most important thing you can do with you, that you want to do with yourself is to live a life of comfort and, 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 and relative ease, then you'll pursue money and you'll pursue comfort. If you think that the most important thing that you can do in life is to, uh, you know, be like a big athletic superstar, then you'll play sports 50 times every weekend. If you think the most important thing that you can do in your life is to, to be a big rock star like I wanted to be, then you'll do nothing but play your drums all the time and, and, and all that. But if you think that your life is about Jesus, then you'll live a different life. And here's, here's where I want to go with this. You see, if you understand that you don't belong to you, that you belong to God, that changes your perspective of what your mission in life is, what you're here to do. There's a scripture in Acts, or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, here's what we have to wrap our minds around. We are not our own handiwork. We don't create ourselves. I know a lot of us like to think of ourselves that way and we make ourselves into something, but we can do all that we want. But at the end of the day, we did not cause ourselves to exist. We are created by God for a purpose. We're His handiwork. Created to do these good works that He prepared in advance for us to do. But recognize this. When that becomes your mission, you don't do those things so that God will love and accept you. You do those things because God loves and accepts you, and that's just naturally comes out of your life now. So my mission is this. I've, I've, I've distilled it down to a sentence. To glorify God in everything through love, faith, obedience, and witness. Since I am God's, my mission is to fulfill my divine purpose by glorifying God in everything through the work he has prepared for me to do. My life is a living sacrifice to God's glory. Now currently my mission is lived out here at First United Methodist Church in Marion. My job is to preach and teach when given the opportunity. It's to oversee the youth and the mission ministries of this church and other duties as assigned. I wanted to show a picture like of me like shining Mike's shoes, but I couldn't make that happen. See, it's my intention to fulfill these responsibilities out of gratitude and humble service to God to do the very best that I can with what God's given to me out of gratitude. You see, when there were nights where I'd be freezing to death in this steel mill, hating life, being yelled and cursed at by, by you know, these, these crane operators that were just being so mean, and that was just the girls that worked there, uh, you know, <laughs> I just would like remember 
what it was like to be in ministry. There were times on the ranch when, when I remember one Sunday afternoon, you know, I used to think my Sunday afternoons used to consist of, of going home watching football and maybe having a Bible study or whatever. This particular Sunday afternoon at the, at the ranch, I was down in this shed. It was the middle of winter, and the manure had frozen in the manure spreader. Okay? Because you got to spread that stuff in the field, and it was a brick. And my job for the day was to take one of those propane heaters and heat it up and chip away at it with a crowbar until it was liquidy enough that I could spit it out onto the ground. Yippee. (laughs) And I longed for the day, really, that I thought would never come, which would be to have a day like I'm going to have today, where I get up and come to a church and pray with some friends and worship God in a community with people I love and then spend the afternoon with good friends talking about our lives and celebrating God's grace and then at night having some people come over for a a Bible study and have a good time. Long for that and I get to do that now and I'm so grateful. So my mission is to glorify God in all that because I get to. Now, Here's the deal. Despite my best efforts to do all these things this way, I know that I can't. I know that I'm going to fail. I know there'll be expectations that you all have of me that I will not live up to. And for a very long time, that used to ruin me. But I'm getting to the place where I just have to accept who I am. And hopefully you will too. And you'll still love me anyway, right? Thank you. That was your cue, and you lost it. (laughs) So what's my method? How am I going to do all this? Do I have it nailed down perfectly? Of course not. Is it it a a tried and true, you know, process with steps and plans? No. It's one sentence, more of a philosophy and an ideal that is something that can be easily understood in a, in a minute, but takes a lifetime to really figure out. And it's this. My method is to connect the gospel to every area of my life. See, I don't want to live a life of compartments. The church Keith, the husband Keith, the dad Keith, the staff leader Keith, the friend Keith, whatever. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to have parts of my life that belong to God where I'm connected to the gospel and other parts where it's just all about me. And you know what? It's easy for that to happen in ministry. It's easy for that to happen to pastors and church leaders because sometimes when you, when you do what we do, people have this vision of you or whatever and they think, but you know in your heart that's not who you really are. So you can find yourself playing this part, but it's not really you. And then you wonder, well, what happens to me? And you start to find your identity in things that aren't the gospel. But that doesn't just happen to pastors. It happens to housewives. It happens to engineers. It happens to school teachers and bus drivers and students and waiters and whoever else. When we ever forget that we need to connect the gospel to every area of our lives, we run the risk of connecting it to something else and letting something else define us, letting something else take a priority in our lives, letting something else own a piece of us. And we cannot do that. We have to recognize that when Jesus saves, he doesn't just save part of you. He saves all of you. Every part of you has been saved. Every part of you is his handiwork, not just the parts that you want to put a nice little package on and give to him at church. 
You belong to him completely. So every area of your life, everything that you do has to be informed and shaped and lived through the gospel. And that goes to how you interact with your family. It goes to how you interact with your coworkers, your employees, your employers, your students, your teachers, your friends, your family members, whoever. It goes to how you deal with your finances. It goes to how you deal with your, your, your spare time and what you're going to give yourself to in terms of your energy and your resources. It goes to, to who you're going to be in every situation. It all has to be centered on the gospel. Everything that we do in the church has to be centered on the gospel. Everything that we do in our lives has to be centered on the gospel because this world will mess us up if we don't. It's real easy to get caught up in the other stuff, isn't it? It's easy for me. Even as blessed as I am, when I look around my neighborhood and everybody's got nice, lush green grass and my yard looks like a hay field because it's all dead. Right? It's easy when you're driving down the road and your car breaks down and you go, why do I have to drive this piece of junk? Look what they get to drive. It's easy when, when we look at ourselves and go, did I gain a little weight here? What's happening? I got gray hairs in here, you know. I used to have this really cool goatee. I have to shave it because it's gray. It's easy to get off track, isn't it? To look at what other people have or what other people do and go, why don't I have that? Why don't I get to do that? And forget that none of that truly defines you. At least it's certainly not supposed to. The gospel is the key to life. One more scripture I want to read to you here. We read this last Sunday night at my house at our, our, at our Bible study. Titus chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Paul is introducing this idea to this young preacher, and he says this. Here's his introduction to his letter. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted me by the command of God our Savior. You see, the gospel is what leads us into godliness, not your willpower and your accountability partner. The gospel leads you. Those things can help you, but the gospel is what's going to lead you into godliness. The gospel is what's going to lead you into the hope of eternal life, a life that doesn't begin when you die, but begins the moment that you have faith in Jesus. Jesus has come that you'd have life abundantly, that you'd have a, a real life, a full life, but that only happens when you have that life in him. And the gospel and being connected to it is the key. So the method for my life and for my ministry is to make sure that everything that we do is gospel-centered, gospel-focused. So let's do that right now. If you're here today and you need Jesus to save you from something, maybe you need to be saved for the first time, Maybe you need to be saved for the 527th time. Whatever it is, when you come down to take communion, don't you just do it because it's the first Sunday of the month, and that's what we do here at First United Methodist Church. You do it because you recognize that you need to be saved. Yeah, Sunday school teacher, that's a wonderful person. You need to be saved. Yeah, mother of the year, whatever you are, whatever your identity is, however good a person, whatever you've got going on, you need to be saved. You who feel so far from God that you're unacceptable to him, that you've blown it in your life so many times that you're unworthy and deserve nothing, you need to be saved. 
and you can be because he's promised that whoever would come to him, he would never cast aside. Never. So when you come forward today, bring that stuff with you. Take his saving grace and bring it into your life. You see, that's what he had in mind when he, when he took this bread. This was just what he had on hand when he was with the disciples. But he was able to take it and use it, and he, he gave thanks for it, and he broke it, and he said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat this. Take it into yourself. Take it into your body in such a way that, that you won't be able to make a distinction between the bread and your body anymore. Take me inside you broken before you. This is what it cost me. See, the gospel frees you from the world of, you know, thinking terribly of yourself because you're such a, a loser and a sinner when you recognize the value that God put on your life that he was willing to pay the price for it. Take and eat. It's my body. And then after they had finished their supper, he took the cup and he gave thanks for it, and he passed it around the room, and he said, now take and drink this, each of you. This is, my, the, this is my blood. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. And basically what he said was, and you who feel like you've saved yourself, that you've made yourself righteous, that you've, that you've you know, been a great person, you, instead of being prideful, recognize the fact that I have to pay the price with my blood for you, and I do it gladly because you matter to me. Take and drink. Communion in the United Methodist Church is open communion, which means this, that we don't put, a, we don't put any, any value on whether you're a member of this church or any other church. What we put a value on is whether you want to come to Jesus to be saved. And if the answer to that question is yes, then you're welcome at his table this morning. In just a moment, Vicki and I will be down at our stations in and, and you'll come down as the Spirit leads you, and you'll, you'll come, and if you have something to put in the offering to give to the Lord or a prayer card or whatever, you'll have the plates there. You'll drop that stuff in, and then we'll say to you, this is the body of Christ and the blood of Christ for you, and you'll say amen. And if you want to take some time to pray, you can do that. If you want to go back to your seat, whatever, however you do it is up to you and God, but the most important thing is that you recognize today that your life is in the gospel and that it's here for you. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for who you are and for your grace and for your mercy and for what you've done, Lord, to the depths that you went to prove and show to us, Lord, how much you love us. Father, today, Lord, we seek to be saved. We seek you. Lord, we come to you knowing that you'll never cast us aside. And God, we put ourselves in your hands the hands that would be pierced because of love. And we cling to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.